Chapter fifty seven, part two of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume five, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter fifty seven, The Turks, part two. Since the fall of the Caliphs, the discord and degeneracy of the Saracens respected the Asiatic provinces of Rome, which, by the victories of Nicephorus, Zemeskes, and Basil, had been extended as far as Antioch and the eastern boundaries of Armenia. Twenty-five years after the death of Basil, his successors were suddenly assaulted by an unknown race of barbarians, who united the Scythian valour with the fanaticism of new proselytes, and the art and riches of a powerful monarchy. The myriads of Turkish horse overspread a frontier of six hundred miles, from Taurus to Azram, and the blood of one hundred and thirty thousand Christians was a grateful sacrifice to the Arabian prophet. Yet the arms of Togrul did not make any deep or lasting impression on the Greek empire. The torrent rolled away from the open country, the sultan retired without glory or success from the siege of an Armenian city, the obscure hostilities were continued or suspended with a vicissitude of events, and the bravery of the Macedonian legions renewed the fame of the conqueror of Asia. The name of Alp Arslan, the valiant lion, is expressive of the popular idea of the perfection of a man, and the successor of Tulgrul displayed the fierceness and generosity of the royal animal. He passed the Euphrates at the head of the Turkish cavalry, and entered Caesarea, the metropolis of Cappadocia, to which he had been attracted by the fame and wealth of the temple of St. Basil. The solid structure resisted the destroyer, but he carried away the doors of the shrine, encrusted with gold and pearls, and profaned the relics of the totaler saint, whose mortal frailties were now covered by the venerable rust of antiquity. The final conquest of Armenia and Georgia was achieved by Alp Arslan. In Armenia, the title of a kingdom, and the spirit of a nation, were annihilated. The artificial fortifications were yielded by the mercenaries of Constantinople, by strangers without faith, veterans without pay or arms, and recruits without experience or discipline. The loss of this important frontier was the news of a day, and the Catholics were neither surprised nor displeased that a people so deeply infected with the Nestorian and Eutychian errors had been delivered by Christ and his mother into the hands of the infidels. The woods and valleys of Mount Caucasus were more strenuously defended by the native Georgians or Iberians, but the Turkish sultan and his son Malik were indefatigable in this holy war. Their captives were compelled to promise a spiritual as well as temporal obedience, and instead of their collars and bracelets, an iron horseshoe, a badge of ignominy, was imposed on the infidels who still adhered to the worship of their fathers. The change, however, was not sincere or universal, and through ages of servitude the Georgians have maintained the succession of their princes and bishops. But a race of men, whom nature has cast in her most perfect mould, is degraded by poverty, ignorance, and vice. Their profession, and still more their practice, of Christianity is an empty name, and if they have emerged from heresy, it is only because they are too illiterate to remember a metaphysical creed. The false or genuine magnanimity of Mahmud the Ghaznavide was not imitated by Alp Arslan, and he attacked without scruple the Greek Empress Eudocia and her children. 
His alarming progress compelled her to give herself and her sceptre to the hand of a soldier, and Romanus Diogenes was invested with the imperial purple. His patriotism, and perhaps his pride, urged him from Constantinople within two months after his accession, and the next campaign he most scandalously took the field during the holy festival of Easter. In the palace Diogenes was no more than the husband of Eudocia. In the camp he was the emperor of the Romans, and he sustained that character with feeble resources and invincible courage. By his spirit and success the soldiers were taught to act, the subjects to hope, and the enemies to fear. The Turks had penetrated into the heart of Phrygia, but the Sultan himself had resigned to his emirs the prosecution of the war, and their numerous detachments were scattered over Asia in the security of conquest. Laden with spoil, and careless of discipline, they were separately surprised and defeated by the Greeks. The activity of the Emperor seemed to multiply his presence, and while they heard of his expedition to Antioch, the enemy felt his sword on the hills of Trebizond. In three laborious campaigns the Turks were driven beyond the Euphrates. In the fourth and last, Romanus undertook the deliverance of Armenia. The desolation of the land obliged him to transport a supply of two months' provisions, and he marched forwards to the siege of Malazkurd, an important fortress midway between the modern cities of Azurum and Van. His army amounted, at the least, to one hundred thousand men. The troops of Constantinople were reinforced by the disorderly multitudes of Phrygia and Cappadocia, but the real strength was composed of the subjects and allies of Europe, the legions of Macedonia, and the squadrons of Bulgaria. The Uzi, a Moldavian horde, who were themselves of the Turkish race, and above all, the mercenary and adventurous bands of French and Normans. Their lances were commanded by the valiant Ursul of Balliol, the kinsman or father of the Scottish kings and were allowed to excel in the exercise of arms, or, according to the Greek style, in the practice of the Phyric dance. On the report of this bold invasion, which threatened his hereditary dominions, Alp Arslan flew to the scene of action at the head of forty thousand horse. His rapid and skilful evolutions distressed and dismayed the superior numbers of the Greeks, and in the defeat of Basiliasius, one of their principal generals, he displayed the first example of his valour and clemency. The imprudence of the emperor had separated his forces after the reduction of Malazkurd. It was in vain that he attempted to recall the mercenary Franks. They refused to obey his summons. He disdained to await their return. The desertion of the Uzi filled his mind with anxiety and suspicion, and against the most salutary advice he rushed forwards to speedy and decisive action. Had he listened to the fair proposals of the sultan, Romanus might have secured a retreat, perhaps a peace, but in these overtures he suppressed the fear or weakness of the enemy, and his answer was conceived in the tone of insult and defiance. If the barbarian wishes for peace, let him evacuate the ground which he occupies for the encampment of the Romans, and surrender his city and palace of Ray as a pledge of his sincerity. Alp Arslan smiled at the vanity of the demand, but he wept the death of so many faithful Muslims, and after a devout prayer proclaimed a free permission to all who were desirous of retiring from the field. With his own hands he tied up his horse's tail, exchanged his bow and arrows for a mace and scimitar, clothed himself in a white garment, perfumed his body with musk, and declared that if he were vanquished, that spot should be the place of his burial. The sultan himself had affected to cast away his missile weapons, but his hopes of victory were placed in the arrows of the Turkish cavalry, 
whose squadrons were loosely distributed in the form of a crescent. Instead of the successive lines and reserves of the Grecian tactics, Romulus led his army in a single and solid phalanx, and pressed with vigor and impatience the artful and yielding resistance of the barbarians. In this desultory and fruitless combat he spent the greater part of a summer's day, till prudence and fatigue compelled him to return to his camp. But a retreat is always perilous in the face of an active foe, and no sooner had the standard been turned to the rear than the phalanx was broken by the base cowardice, or the baser jealousy, of Andronicus, a rival prince, who disgraced his birth and the purple of the Caesars. The Turkish squadrons poured a cloud of arrows on this moment of confusion and lassitude, and the horns of their formidable crescent were closed in the rear of the Greeks. In the destruction of the army and pillage of the camp, it would be needless to mention the number of the slain or captives. The Byzantine riders deplore the loss of an inestimable pearl. They forgot to mention that in this fatal day the Asiatic provinces of Rome were irretrievably sacrificed. As long as a hope survived, Romanus attempted to rally and save the relics of his army. When the centre, the imperial station, was left naked on all sides, and encompassed by the victorious Turks, he still, with desperate courage, maintained the fight till the close of day, at the head of the brave and faithful subjects who adhered to his standard. They fell around him, his horse was slain, the emperor was wounded, yet he stood alone and intrepid, till he was oppressed and bound by the strength of multitudes. The glory of this illustrious prize was disputed by a slave and a soldier, a slave who had seen him on the throne of Constantinople, and a soldier whose extreme deformity had been excused on the promise of some signal service. Despoiled of his arms, his jewels, and his purple, Romanus spent a dreary and perilous night on the field of battle, amidst a disorderly crowd of the meaner barbarians. In the morning the royal captive was presented to Alp Arslan, who doubted of his fortune till the identity of the person was ascertained by the report of his ambassadors, and by the more pathetic evidence of Balsalasius, who embraced with tears the feet of his unhappy sovereign. The successor of Constantine, in a plebeian habit, was led into the Turkish divan, and commanded to kiss the ground before the lord of Asia. He reluctantly obeyed, and Alp Arslan, starting from his throne, is said to have planted his foot on the neck of the Roman emperor. But the fact is doubtful, and, if, in this moment of insolence, the sultan complied with the national custom, the rest of his conduct has extorted the praise of his bigoted foes, and may afford a lesson to the most civilized ages. He instantly raised the royal captive from the ground, and thrice clasping his hand with tender sympathy, assured him that his life and dignity should be inviolate in the hands of a prince, who had learned to respect the majesty of his equals and the vicissitudes of fortune. From the divan, Romanus was conducted to an adjacent tent, where he was served with pomp and reverence by the officers of the sultan, who twice each day seated him in the place of honour at his own table. In a free and familiar conversion of eight days, not a word, not a look of insult, escaped from the conqueror, but he severely censured the unworthy subjects who had deserted their valiant prince in the hour of danger, and gently admonished his antagonist of some errors which he had committed in the management of the war. In the preliminaries of negotiation, Alp Arslan asked him what treatment he expected to receive, and the calm indifference of the emperor displayed the freedom of his mind. "'If you are cruel,' said he, "'you will take my life. If you listen to pride, you will drag me at your chariot-wheels. If you consult your interest, you will accept a ransom, and restore me to my country.' 
"'And what,' continued the Sultan, "'would have been your own behaviour had fortune smiled on your arms?' The reply of the Greek betrays a sentiment which prudence and even gratitude should have taught him to suppress. "'Had I vanquished,' he fiercely said, "'I would have inflicted on thy body many a stripe.' The Turkish conqueror smiled at the insolence of his captive, observed that the Christian law inculcated the love of enemies and forgiveness of injuries, and nobly declared that he would not imitate an example which he condemned. After mature deliberation, Alp Arslan dictated the terms of liberty and peace, a ransom of a million, an annual tribute of three hundred and sixty thousand pieces of gold, the marriage of the royal children, and the deliverance of all the Moslems who were in the power of the Greeks. Romanus, with a sigh, subscribed this treaty, so disgraceful to the majesty of the empire. He was immediately invested with a Turkish robe of honour, his nobles and patricians were restored to their sovereign, and the sultan, after a courteous embrace, dismissed him with rich presents and a military guard. No sooner did he reach the confines of the empire than he was informed that the palace and provinces had disclaimed their allegiance to a captive. A sum of two hundred thousand pieces was painfully collected, and the fallen monarch transmitted this part of his ransom, with a sad confession of his impotence and disgrace. The generosity, or perhaps the ambition, of the sultan prepared to espouse the cause of his ally, but his designs were prevented by the defeat, imprisonment, and death of Romanus Diogenes. In the treaty of peace it does not appear that Alp Arslan extorted any province or city from the captive emperor, and his revenge was satisfied with the trophies of his victory, and the spoils of Anatolia, from Antioch to the Black Sea. The fairest part of Asia was subject to his laws. Twelve hundred princes, or the sons of princes, stood before his throne, and two hundred thousand soldiers marched under his banners. The sultan disdained to pursue the fugitive Greeks, but he meditated the more glorious conquest of Turkestan, the original seat of the house of Seljuk. He moved from Baghdad to the banks of the Oxus, a bridge was thrown over the river, and twenty days were consumed in the passage of his troops. But the progress of the great king was retarded by the governor of Berzem, and Joseph, the Charismian, presumed to defend his fortress against the powers of the east. When he was produced a captive in the royal tent, the sultan, instead of praising his valour, severely reproached his obstinate folly, and the insolent replies of the rebel provoked a sentence that he should be fastened to four stakes, and left to expire in that painful situation. At this command the desperate Charismian, drawing a dagger, rushed headlong towards the throne. The guards raised their battle-axes. Their zeal was checked by Alp Arslan, the most skilful archer of the age. He drew his bow, but his foot slipped. The arrow glanced aside, and he received in his breast the dagger of Joseph, who was instantly cut in pieces. The wound was mortal, and the Turkish prince bequeathed a dying admonition to the pride of kings. "'In my youth,' said Alp Arslan, "'I was advised by a sage to humble myself before God, to distrust my own strength, and never to despise the most contemptible foe. I have neglected these lessons, and my neglect has been deservedly punished.' Yesterday, as from an eminence I beheld the numbers, the discipline, and the spirit of my armies, the earth seemed to tremble under my feet, and I said in my heart, Surely thou art the king of the world, the greatest and most invincible of warriors. These armies are no longer mine, and in the confidence of my personal strength I now fall by the hand of an assassin. Alp Arslan possessed the virtues of a Turk and a Mussulman. His voice and stature commanded the reverence of mankind, 
His face was shaded with long whiskers, and his ample turban was fashioned in the shape of a crown. The remains of the sultan were deposited in the tomb of the Seljukian dynasty, and the passenger might read and meditate this useful inscription. O ye who have seen the glory of Alp Arslan exalted to the heavens, repair to Maru, and you will behold it buried in the dust. The annihilation of the inscription, and the tomb itself, more forcibly proclaims the instability of human greatness. During the life of Alp Arslan, his eldest son had been acknowledged as the future sultan of the Turks. On his father's death the inheritance was disputed by an uncle, a cousin, and a brother. They drew their scimitars, and assembled their followers, and the triple victory of Malik Shah established his own reputation, and the right of primogeniture. In every age, and more especially in Asia, the thirst of power has inspired the same passions, and occasioned the same disorders. But from the long series of civil war, it would not be easy to extract a sentiment more pure and magnanimous than is contained in the saying of the Turkish prince. On the eve of battle he performed his devotions at Thos, before the tomb of the Imam Riza. As the sultan rose from the ground, he asked his vizier Nizam, who had knelt beside him, what had been the object of his secret petition. "'That your arms may be crowned with victory,' was the prudent, and most probably the sincere, answer of the minister. "'For my part,' replied the generous Malik, "'I implored the Lord of hosts that he would take from me my life and crown, if my brother be more worthy than myself to reign over the Muslims.' The favourable judgment of heaven was ratified by the caliph and, for the first time, the sacred title of commander of the faithful was communicated to a barbarian. But this barbarian, by his personal merit, and the extent of his empire, was the greatest prince of his age. After the settlement of Persia and Syria, he marched at the head of innumerable armies to achieve the conquest of Turkestan, which had been undertaken by his father. In his passage of the Oxus, the boatman, who had been employed in transporting some troops, complained that their payment was assigned on the revenues of Antioch. The sultan frowned at this preposterous choice, but he smiled at the artful flattery of his vizier. It was not to postpone their reward that I selected those remote places, but to leave a memorial to posterity, that under your reign Antioch and the Oxus were subject to the same sovereign." But this description of his limits was unjust and parsimonious. Beyond the Oxus, he reduced to his obedience the cities of Bokhara, Karizma, and Samarkand, and crushed each rebellious slave or independent savage who dared to resist. Malik passed the Sihan, or Yuxerxes, the last boundary of Persian civilization. The hordes of Turkestan yielded to his supremacy. His name was inserted on the coins, and in the prayers of Kashgar, a Tartar kingdom on the extreme borders of China. From the Chinese frontier he stretched his immediate jurisdiction, or feudatory sway, to the west and south. As far as the mountains of Georgia, the neighborhood of Constantinople, the holy city of Jerusalem, and the spicy groves of Arabia Felix. Instead of resigning himself to the luxury of his harem, the shepherd-king, both in peace and war, was in action and in the field. By the perpetual motion of the royal camp, each province was successively blessed with his presence, and he is said to have perambulated twelve times the wide extent of his dominions, which surpassed the Asiatic reign of Cyrus and the Caliphs. Of these pilgrimages, the most pious and splendid was the pilgrimage of Mecca. The freedom and safety of the caravans were protected by his arms. 
the citizens and pilgrims were enriched by the profusion of his alms, and the desert was cheered by the places of relief and refreshment which he instituted for the use of his brethren. Hunting was the pleasure, and even the passion, of the sultan, and his train consisted of forty-seven thousand horses. But after the massacre of a Turkish chase, for each piece of game he bestowed a piece of gold on the poor, a slight atonement, at the expense of the people, for the cost and mischief of the amusement of kings. In the peaceful prosperity of his reign, the cities of Asia were adorned with palaces and hospitals, with mosques and colleges. Few departed from his divan without reward, and none without justice. The language and literature of Persia revived under the house of Seljuk, and if Malik emulated the liberality of a Turk less potent than himself, his palace might resound with the songs of a hundred poets. The sultan bestowed a more serious and learned care on the reformation of the calendar, which was effected by a general assembly of the astronomers of the East. By a law of the Prophet, the Muslims are confined to the irregular course of the lunar months. In Persia, since the age of Zoroaster, the revolution of the sun has been known and celebrated as an annual festival. But after the fall of the Magian Empire, the intercalculation had been neglected. The fractions of minutes and hours were multiplied into days, and the date of the springs was removed from the sign of Aries to that of Pisces. The reign of Malik was illustrated by the Galilean era, and all errors, either past or future, were corrected by a computation of time, which surpasses the Julian and approaches the accuracy of the Gregorian style. In a period when Europe was plunged into the deepest barbarism, the light and splendor of Asia may be ascribed to the docility rather than the knowledge of the Turkish conquerors. An ample share of their wisdom and virtue is due to a Persian vizier, who ruled the empire under the reigns of Alp Arslan and his son. Nizam, one of the most illustrious ministers of the East, was honored by the caliph as an oracle of religion and science. He was trusted by the sultan as the faithful vice-regent of his power and justice. After an administration of thirty years, the fame of the vizier, his wealth, and even his services were transformed into crimes. He was overthrown by the insidious arts of a woman and a rival, and his fall was hastened by a rash declaration that his cap and inkhorn, the badges of his office, were connected by the divine decree with the throne and diadem of the sultan. At the age of ninety-three years, the venerable statesman was dismissed by his master, accused by his enemies, and murdered by a fanatic. The last words of Nizam attested his innocence, and the remainder of Malik's life was short and inglorious. From Isfahan, the scene of this disgraceful transaction, the sultan moved to Baghdad, with the design of transplanting the caliph and affixing his own residence in the capital of the Muslim world. The feeble successor of Mohammed obtained a respite of ten days, and before the expiration of the term, the barbarian was summoned by the angel of death. His ambassadors at Constantinople had asked in marriage a Roman princess, but the proposal was decently eluded, and the daughter of Alexius, who might herself have been the victim, expresses her abhorrence of his unnatural conjunction. The daughter of the sultan was bestowed on the caliph Moktadi, with the imperious condition that, renouncing the society of his wives and concubines, he should forever confine himself to this honorable alliance. End of chapter 57, part 2